Luke 4, um, verses 14 to 30. If you have your church Bible with you, you can turn to page 727. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in the synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he and he stood up and read, to, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, and to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he wrote up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, hold yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you have you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Isaiah in Elijah's time, where the, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah wasn't sent to any of them, but to a widow is Zarephath in the region of Sidon, Sidon, and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the name of Elijah the prophet. Yet no one was none of no one of not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman of the, the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow, the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. going to try this new mic and see if it works a bit better. Um, we're going to start a new series on Gospel of Luke. Um, we're going to go through, um, uh, we're calling this Luke for Hong Kong. And one of the reasons why we're going through Luke and not another gospel is because there is a lot of emphasis on, uh, obviously, the work of the Holy Spirit in Luke, uh, but also the tangible things. Um, Jesus really came for the marginalized. Jesus, Jesus came for the people who are out on the outside. That's one of the biggest emphasis in Luke, and I think I thought that uh, we would take this time um, and see uh, what that has to say to us as we live in uh, one of the most pro- prosperous um, cities in the world, Hong Kong. But as we do that, why don't we pray that God will speak to us through this text. Lord, we give you great thanks. For your word, we thank you for the diversity of witness um, that's found in the scriptures and in the gospels. And Lord, we humbly submit ourselves before you as we come to this text and as we come to Luke. And we pray that you will speak to us. 
Help us, as Andy prayed, not only um, to be uh, people who hear these words, but will we'll make these words uh, part of our lives, that it may be sown deeply into our lives and, and bear fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, a friend of mine was recently named uh, one of the 30, in, by Forbes magazine, 30 under 30. Uh, 30 more, one of, uh, promising uh, entrepreneurs under 30. I remember seeing this and then thinking, um, oh, that's him. I wonder who he knows in the Forbes magazine. <laughs> I knew that he was gifted and talented, but you know, when you know a person and you kind of think, well, what's, what makes him so special? What makes him so special? I had doubts about him starting this company in the first place, but obviously many people see things differently, um, see this great potential in the company and in him. So he was named one of the 30 under 30. The thing is, when we're familiar with people, we just don't think that that person is such a big deal. I knew this guy when he was struggling with his faith and when he was struggling with girls. He was just a college student back then. And that is exactly what's happening in uh, in Jesus' ministry as we encounter him in, in Luke 4. Jesus began his public ministry by getting baptized by John the Baptist. Then filled with the Holy Spirit, he went to the desert. When he survives the temptation and the hunger and the pain, he comes back to his hometown and starts preaching the gospel there. And his teaching is so amazing that his teaching spreads like wildfire. wildfire. But then he does this amazing thing. He goes back to his hometown on the Sabbath day, opens up the scroll to Isaiah's prophecy and the Messiah, uh, uh, about the Messiah, and he reads it. He then says about the text, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Sorry, um, Mike, Michael, is this, is this working fine? Yeah? Yeah, sorry. Um, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, verse 21. And what a remarkable thing to say, if you think about it. Isaiah wrote about 700 years before the Messiah's coming, the anointed one's coming. Of course, the anointed one means the Messiah in Hebrew and Christ in Greek. Jesus is basically saying that he is that man, the long-awaited Messiah that Israel had been waiting for. But then for the Nazareans, their life goes on as if it had, it had not, uh, uh, they had heard nothing special. They're a little bit surprised in verse 22. They speak well of him and the gracious uh, words that came out of his mouth, but they don't get what just happened because they immediately turn around, turn to each other in verse 22 and say to each other, isn't this Joseph's son? They think they know him. They knew Joseph and Mary. They probably knew Jesus as he was growing up. They probably thought that he was a really nice boy. And they may, be, uh, they may have been proud of him as his public ministry is going. But because they thought they knew him, because they were familiar with him, they miss seeing him as he is today. After 700 years of waiting today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And we must not think that this was only their problem. It's distinctly our problem today, isn't it? When I was in England, it was very difficult to tell the English the gospel because they thought they, had, that they knew it already. 
to people who are culturally aware of Jesus, it's really hard to tell people about Jesus. And it's not just the English problem. For example, many people today here in Hong Kong and around the world think that maybe Christianity is just about love. Jesus is about love. And if that's what we want to hear, and that's what we're looking for, we come and we don't miss the, we miss the full hearing of what Jesus is about. Of course, He is love, but we conveniently ignore His teachings about God's holiness, judgment, and hell. For some people, Christianity is all about self-affirmation. People think that Jesus is a personal cheerleader, someone who says, hang in there. You can go for it in faith because God will make your dreams come true. If that's what we do, then we miss the fact that we miss hearing that Jesus is the creator of the whole universe, the Lord over the universe, that we owe everything, our lives, to Him. And I think another way that we have made Jesus familiar to us and manageable, therefore, is how we picture Jesus as a middle-class man, middle-class Jesus. He wants us to wear a WWJD bracelet and go on with our quiet and comfortable lives. Of course, the middle-class Jesus would like our businesses to succeed, for us to continue to climb the, the corporate ladder. Of course, he would like our children to study really hard and go to the best university and make a good living for themselves. Of course, he would want us to do these things. But is this the Jesus that we encounter in the Bible? Is that the Jesus of our text? You see how he says he came for the poor, the prisoners, blind, and the oppressed in verse 18. Luke will make it obvious that he came for the widows and the women um, mentioned in verse 26, and Gentiles and lepers in verse 27. Luke will make it a point to show how Jesus really came for the marginalized, for them. And in many ways, he lived like them. He died without a home. He was homeless. He never married. He was single for the rest. There's this ideal that we all need to get married and have a nice family and nice children. Jesus was a single man. He was crucified. He certainly wasn't middle class. And I'm not saying that being middle class is bad. But I do want to ask, are we saying to ourselves when we come to church, and when we come to Jesus, isn't this Joseph's son? Do we really hear him, or have we stopped listening to him? And if you aren't sure who he is, I'm going to give a little plug. Come join us in CE. Study the gospel. Let's study the gospel of Mark together. Come join us in links as we study Luke this term. Let's not assume that we know him. Come prepared to be surprised and come prepared to meet a person who, who, who calls for our life to be changed radically. Flannery O'Connor wrote that the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. Jesus does not change according to our ability to stomach him. We need to get to know him afresh, especially in the city of Hong Kong. And why do I say that actually uh, it's Hong Kong that desperately needs to encounter Jesus again? Well, one of the reasons why I think is we have made in Hong Kong a mistake that many people have made around the world throughout the history. We have spiritualized Christianity. This is partly what results, I think, in middle-class Christianity, therefore middle-class Jesus. 
Of course, the spiritual part of Jesus' kingdom is very important. It's of first importance. There are, these are not my words, but Paul's words. Uh, uh, no, they're just uh, in point two. Yeah, we're still there, sorry. Uh, Paul put it like this to the Corinthians in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. For what I have received, I passed on to you as the, of, of the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He says, this is of first importance, that he took our biggest problems, problems of our sin. One that is unseen, but that is the biggest. He took care of it by carrying our sin and God's wrath on the cross, by bearing God's wrath on our behalf on the cross. This is good news, and this is of first importance, and we must proclaim this gospel to the rest of the world. But, you see, um, I'm not sure what I that thing. Is it a... Uh, but you see, we can reduce the gospel of, of Jesus to forgiveness of sins either. Christ is much more than that. The gospel is much bigger than that. Listen to how Jesus describes his mission, his gospel, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news, the gospel, to the poor. He sent me to proclaim the freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This statement, what Chris Wright calls the Nazareth Manifesto, pictures the good news, the gospel, that have come in the most physical and material way. That Jesus came to, um, the, uh, to earth... I'm going to switch back to this mic, I think. Um, that Jesus came to um, earth is literally good news for the poor. Because kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, the poor is lifted. Not just spiritually, but materially. The prisoners will be forgiven. The blind will see. The oppressed will go free. The hungry will be fed. Those who are left in the margins of society are included in the kingdom of God, actually actually honored in the kingdom of God. That Jesus brought this kingdom should be good news for us, but also for the people around us as well. When Jesus says he's, pro- he's come to proclaim the good news, the year of the Lord's favor in verse 19, He's using the Old Testament language of the year of the Jubilee. Yes, there is a spiritual significance to the year of Jubilee, but this is intensely physical and material. The debt that we owe to each other in the year of Jubilee is forgiven. It's gone. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us when we loan money to each other, to those who need it? The land that we have bought will be returned to their original owners. In the year of Jubilee. The point is, Luke will not allow us to interpret Jesus' message as purely spiritual, metaphorical. In the next chapters, in the coming chapters, in chapters 5 all the way to 8, 9, Jesus will go around bringing that year of Jubilee that he proclaimed. 
He will forgive people's sins. He will uh, forgive people's debts. Uh, the way that people use their money will change. People will be healed. He will say that the kingdom that the Jubilee looked forward to has already come with him, the king of the kingdom of God. It's here, he will say. Not, all, not fully, but it is here because he brought that kingdom as the king to earth. The mission of the church, then, has to reflect that kingdom's priorities. Mission of the church has to be an extension of Jesus' mission here on earth. The fulfillment that he proclaimed had to be part of the fulfillment that we proclaim. Values reflected in his mission should be the values reflected in the church's outreach. Just as Jesus enacted, made it into a flesh, his proclamation of going to the poor, oppressed, lepers, widows, orphans, blind, the marginalized, the unfamiliar, unfamiliar, the outcast, as well as the rich, we must do the same. I have a habit of quoting Stanley Harawas, but he just gets it right when he writes, Christianity is, not, is an invitation to be part of an alien people who make a difference because they see something they cannot otherwise be seen without Christ. They see something that cannot be seen because of Christ. The church is the visible political enactment of our language of God. Uh, sorry, the biggest problem facing the uh, Christian theology, not translation, but enactment. The church is the visible political enactment of our language of God. What he's saying here is that Christianity is about enacting, making Jesus' proclamation, our language about God, clear in the church. It's an invitation to join a community that lives differently here on earth because we have a different king. They worship a different king. It's not just about spiritual forgiveness or even a different way of seeing the world. It's concrete. Christianity has to be spiritual, but it also has to be physical and material. So where is the emancipation? Where is the healing? Where is the radical message of humility that empties oneself to be with the poor? And the needy? Where is the message of social justice in our Christianity? Where is the message of caring for the widows and the orphans, the outcasts in the society? Where is the message of radical hospitality and sharing? I see, all this must be part of our Christianity because it's part of Jesus' mission. Unless you think that this is just a pretentious sort of idealistic language, it hasn't always been this way. Christians were socially involved and politically conscious. The person who established the National Health Service in the UK was a Christian who was motivated to heal, to give sight to the blind. Chuck Colson is an evangelical Christian who went on trying to reform the prison system. Even now, countless Christians work in education, not because they can't get any other job in other fields, but because part of bringing good news to the poor is bringing education to the poor. Bringing jobs to the poor. Last year, in July 2013, um, Church of England initiated uh, a credit union to put, to compete with uh, uh, predatory lenders, day lenders, to put them out of business. I was talking recently to a Christian CEO of a small company who was wondering about what, bringing some of that sort of social justice language into his life, into his company, especially how much he should be paid and how much the, 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 the employees should be paid. These issues are not easy to think think through, but we must think through them because we believe that the kingdom of God has come and we are his followers, we are his worshipers, we are the citizens of that kingdom here on earth.
This must be good news for us and for the people around us. People should see that the kingdom of God has come because of us. In the coming weeks, Lisa Lee, um, who has joined us as an apprentice, will, uh, is going to help us organize outreach projects around the city. Watch out for opportunities to participate in lunch, uh, box sharing, distribution, elderly visits, prison visits, advocating for the right of the um, Down, syndrome, Down syndrome babies and unborn babies, as well as we're organizing an overseas mission trip in, in, in the summer of 2015. So look for those opportunities and let's participate in that. But more than that, more than that, make Jesus' mission your mission in your workplaces. It must make a difference in the way that we live, how much money we keep, how, much, how we spend our money, how, much, uh, how we spend our time, what profession we choose, how we do the jobs that we're in. So what does your faith look like? Let me ask you, is it just spiritual? Is it just spiritual? Or is it concrete? Is it material? Is it physical? Is the kingdom of God a concept purely reserved for heaven? Or do you believe that it has come with Jesus, that we are his followers? You know, these things are really hard. It's not, I'm not preaching from a sort of a high, mighty pulpit because when I see, when I hear this, the conversation I was having with Mary yesterday was just about how much money should I keep? <laughs> how much of God's money should I keep? It's a, it's a challenging conversation to me. And it should be for all of us. And of course, you would only be able to follow Jesus in this radical way if you are convinced that Jesus really is King, that Jesus really is God, the Christ, the Messiah. And the text is very clear, isn't it? Verse 18, Jesus says he is the anointed one. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And there's a hint of that supernatural power at the end of the text. When everyone is furious at Him and wants to drive Him out of the town and throw Him off the cliff, this is what happens in verse 30. He walks right through the crowd and went on His way. People want to grab him, control him, and kill him, but Jesus will have none of it because he's God. Jesus is not a hometown favorite. He's not just the son of Joseph. He's not just the king of the Israelites. He is the king over the Gentiles. He's the king over the universe. And now that the king has come, things needed to change. The Israelites didn't like that. They wanted to kill him. As I've said this before, but I think it's important to hear again, no one reacts to Jesus mildly. If you come to Links and Christianity Explored to study who he really is, and we've done a bad job, if you walk away thinking, ah, Jesus, that that, that nice man, what a great teacher, and what a great gentleman. That's not the way that Jesus is pictured in the Gospels. Here's how people react to Jesus in our text. They want to kill him. Some will be so bothered by what he has to say. They will find what he says so supremely inconvenient that they would rather kill him than to accept him as their Lord. We see that in today's text, and when we see it even more clearly at the end of Jesus' life, 
when the authorities will want to give, will give a death sentence to, for him, and the crowd will join him in saying, crucify him and crucify him. This isn't the middle class Jesus or Jesus who proclaims a spiritual message that makes no difference in our life. Others, however, will want to give up everything and want to follow him. When Jesus calls Peter from that fishing boat, he left the fish, the big catch, how he made the living, right? He left the big catch on the boat. He left the boat. He left the family to follow Jesus, to worship him, and to live his way. You see, that's the only appropriate response to knowing Jesus, to give up everything to follow him, to worship him. So as, as we come to this challenging text, let me ask you again. Who is Jesus to you? How familiar is he to you? Is he just merely Joseph's son? Is he a famous philosopher? Is he a powerful man? Or is he the Christ? The son of God. The king of God's kingdom here on earth. Who has invited us to come and join him, follow him. Are we citizens of his kingdom? Let's pray. Lord, even as we come to hear your message, and even as we hear these, we're left um, wondering between the gap of what you have preached and our lives, where our lives are at. Lord, help us to come to know you. Help us to come to really grasp who you are. Help us to grasp that you are the creator of the whole universe. You are the king who has come. That there is, you are the one who brought the kingdom of God here on earth. That you will raise us up in the last day and bring that kingdom of God fully. Lord, help us to grasp your identity fully that we may be able to follow you. Send your spirit to us, Lord. Send your spirit to us and convict our hearts of who you are. Lord, we want to be people who are light and salt here in this city. We want to be people who show that the kingdom of God has arrived. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.